At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through this three-week series, we're turning to the biblical book of Isaiah to discover how God's holiness, forgiveness, and love compel us to share Him with others. We'll come face-to-face with whatever's keeping us from answering God's call as Isaiah did. Send me. Amen, church. Good morning again. And it's good to continue to worship the Lord as we open the scriptures this morning. And uh, as I mentioned last week, we're going to spend a few weeks in Isaiah chapter 6. We were inspired by Jesus' words in Luke chapter 24 as we thought about the fulfillment of God's plan for the gospel uh, through doing what the apostles eventually did. Um, beginning in Jerusalem and then Samaria and then to the ends of the world, taking the gospel and bearing witness to Christ. We were inspired by that, and so we wanted to spend a few weeks continuing to think about God's purposes for the nation and our role in it. Um, And there's many ways we could have done that, but our hearts were drawn to Isaiah chapter 6. And so that's where we're going to be for the next uh, few weeks, the next today and then uh, the next two Sundays will be in Isaiah chapter 6, and get a a unique perspective from the Old Testament in God's purpose for us to bear witness to the gospel and his purpose for the nations through Christ. Isaiah chapter 6 is a really well-known chapter in the Bible, if you've spent any time studying it. It is probably the most dramatic of the different prophets being called into the ministry of the prophecy. You remember that we studied the prophet Jonah just a few months ago, and we got just a little bit about his calling. We didn't get a whole lot of details. It just simply says the word of the Lord came to Jonah, right? That's kind of it. With Jeremiah, you get a little bit more of the uh, interaction that Jeremiah and God have with one another. Um, So that one's unique in that way. Um, But in Isaiah chapter 6, it is uh, distinctly unique in that Isaiah experiences what's referred to as a theophany. A theophany is a word that theologians came up with in order to make themselves feel smart. Theophany. Um, But it simply means a vision of God. a, a, A tangible, visible manifestation of the the presence of God, an appearance of God is literally what theophany means. But Isaiah experiences one of those as he's called into the ministry of prophesying. It happens in Isaiah chapter 6. Interestingly, interpreters are kind of unsure entirely why that is because the first five chapters, Isaiah is prophesying. So why is he called in Isaiah chapter 6? Well, we're not entirely sure Um, Maybe we'll get into that as as we go over the next couple of weeks. But regardless, his calling happens in Isaiah chapter 6. And it's a a powerful scene um, that we're not going to get to touch on everything I want to today. It's it's rich. But again, maybe we'll come back to some of this stuff in the next couple of weeks. But we're going to start off in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And we'll dive in from there. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of the Lord's robe filled the temple. Above the Lord stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two wings he covered his face, 
With two wings, he covered his feet, and with two wings, he flew. And one seraphim called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Working with middle schoolers and high schoolers, as I did in my former job, one of the fascinating and quite humorous experiences is watching the transformation that takes place in so many young boys' lives. Many of you have witnessed this transformation take place. Many of us have experienced it. But here's what often happens. There's a young man, an emerging adult. He's in late middle school or high school, so around 14, 15, 16 years old. And he is not really interested in his appearance so much. He's kind of a roll out of bed, put on sweatpants and t-shirt, run my fingers through my hair kind of guy. So when it comes to hygiene, he's kind of take it or leave it. Maybe I'll wear deodorant, but I can't smell myself. So really, do I need it? And do I have to change my socks every day? It just seems excessive. And despite the earnest, desperate pleas of his parents, this young guy just doesn't really care about what he looks like or smells like. And then, one day, all of a sudden, everything changes because he meets a girl. And he's seen plenty of girls before, but he sees this young lady in a whole new way. It's like the scales fell from his eyes and he is captivated, just riveted on her glory and beauty and grace that just radiates from her in his eyes. And so what do you know? All of a sudden, little Johnny is taking showers regularly. It's a miracle. And all of a sudden, he is wearing Axe body spray. A lot of Axe body spray. Almost miraculously smelling nice, looking nice, dressed sharp. He is transformed by what he's seen. Well, what's happened? What's happened to this guy? He has experienced what 16th century pastor and theologian Thomas Cramner called the expulsive power of a new affection. When the young man beheld the glory and beauty and grace of the young woman, he gained a new affection. And that new affection pushed out, or in Cramner's words, expulsed, That new affection pushed out old habits and his old mindset. This new affection came into his heart and pushed out old attitudes and old ways of thinking and behaving. Because of this new affection, he had a drive to change. He had a power to go in a new direction, a power that he didn't have before. He gazed upon the glory of the young woman. And what I want to suggest to you is that that exact principle is at play in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. God is calling Isaiah to a very difficult task. 
Because God's people at this point in their history are in really bad shape, spiritually and morally. We read in Isaiah's speeches that I mentioned in chapters 1 through 5, we read that God's people are not caring for the orphan and the widow. They are oppressing and taking advantage of the poor. They are giving into temptation to make allegiances with pagan idolatrous nations. There is all sorts of corruption and faithlessness during this time. And God is calling Isaiah to the difficult task of confronting all this sin and rebellion. Isaiah's message certainly contains hope and the opportunity for God's people to experience grace, but that hope and grace is only experienced when the people get real honest about their sin and corruption. And it is Isaiah who God has called to this difficult task of confronting a rebellious people. And the same is true for me and you, friends. God may not be calling us to the role of a prophet in ancient Israel, but God is calling us to be ministers of his word and is not always an easy task to minister that word. There are many challenges we face as we seek to testify to Jesus and share the truth of the gospel with friends, families, and whomever else. Furthermore, Apart from our calling to minister God's word, God calls us to many other difficulties. There may be a difficult relationship that God has called you to. There may be chronic health issues that God has not removed from you yet. There may be persistent sin struggle. One that even though you've had victory in other parts of your life, this one's just not going away. So whether it's our calling to bear witness to the gospel or it's our calling to simply faithfully follow Christ in life, the question is, how can we answer God's call even when we know what he's calling us to won't be easy? What can propel us into a life of obedience and saying yes to God's call, again, even when we know that what he's calling us to won't be easy? And, answer, and friends, the answer shared with us in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, is that seeing God's glory enables us to serve God faithfully. Seeing God's glory enables us to respond in service to him and fulfill our calling in the same way that that young man, when he gets a glimpse of the glory of his young love, he is enabled to change He is empowered to move forward in a new way. And the same can be true for me and you. As we get a glimpse of God, when we feast our eyes on his glory and beauty and splendor, it enables us to move forward in fulfillment of our calling, no matter how difficult. So in verses 1 through 4, we're asking the question, what did Isaiah see? What did Isaiah see about God that was so transformative for him? First, we see that he saw the lordship of God. He saw the lordship of God. So look again at verse 1. It starts off by giving us a marker in time for when the vision happens, and we'll come back to the significance of that marker in time. But then Isaiah starts to describe the nature of, of his vision. He says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. 
So the first thing we hear regarding God's lordship is that Isaiah refers to him as Lord. This is the Hebrew word Adonai, and it can be translated as master or sovereign, but most often it's translated simply Lord. And this is the most common title for God in the Bible. Well, over 7,000 times in the Bible, the title Lord is used, and the vast majority of times it is referring to God. God is the Lord. As I said, there's the Hebrew word Adonai, translated Lord, but there's also God's name, Yahweh or Jehovah, that's translated Lord. And then in the New Testament, there's the Greek word Kyrios, which is translated Lord. But thousands upon thousands of times, God is named the Lord. God is called upon as the Lord. And if he is Lord, then we are servants. If he is Lord, then we answer when he calls. We submit to him. We obey him. We rely upon him. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, and no surprise, as the Lord, he was sitting upon a throne. Because as the Lord, he is sovereign. He is the ruler. He is enthroned. He is in charge. And he says that this throne was high and lifted up. In other words, this throne is above other thrones. God is not just the Lord. He is the Lord of lords. I remember my first job out of school about 13 years ago now. I worked for a retirement community that was a part of a corporation called Brookdale Senior Living. And one day, somewhat randomly, I remember, our chief executive was coming from HQ in Nashville to visit our property. And man, we rolled out the red carpet. We cleaned up the place a little better. We all dressed a little nicer than our normal business casual because this guy wasn't just our boss. He was the boss of bosses. And his name, fittingly, was Bill Sheriff, the guy in charge, the Lord. And we were all enamored and yielded to this guy. And Isaiah here has that same sense of awe and reverence at the lordship of God. You don't just casually stroll up to a throne, right? No, you bow before a throne because there's a sense of power and authority emanating from that space. And so we must ask ourselves, have you been gripped by the lordship of God? Has it hit you deep in your soul that you are not God? You are not in control. You are not in charge. God is Lord. He is high and lifted up, and we are just humans. We are servants, and he is the Lord. This means my dreams, my desires, my comforts, my conveniences, my preferences, my plans are all submitted to him who is the Lord. As one theologian put it, there is not one square inch across the entire universe over which the Lord does not declare, mine. Not a single square inch that he doesn't claim because it is all his. And Isaiah sees this about God out of the mouths of infants, right? Isaiah sees this about God. He beholds the Lord. And so he's able to know that despite his difficult calling, 
despite whatever tough situation that he's about to walk through, he knows that none of it will happen outside of the domain of God. He is God over all, all spaces and all times. He is God of the mountain and God of the valley. As I said, this was a difficult time in the life of God's people. Not only are they struggling spiritually and morally, but they just lost their king. Remember Isaiah said that this vision happened in the year that King Uzziah died. And Uzziah had been a successful king for Judah. In many respects, he was successful. So at the very start of this vision, it's as if Isaiah is, or it's as if God is saying, Hey, Isaiah, your king is dead, but the king is not dead. He's still on his throne. He was and is and will be the Lord. Seeing that enables Isaiah to serve. Isaiah sees the glory of God's lordship, and it's, in, it's going to enable him to say, Yes, Lord, send me. I'm yours. It enables him to fulfill God's call on his life. Secondly, Isaiah sees the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God. So in referring to the transcendence of God, I could have labeled this point more simply the greatness of God, but... I think the idea of God's transcendence is really important, and it's captured in a powerful way here. So think about that word transcendence. It contains that root word transcend. God transcends everything. He is above and beyond what we could even imagine. He transcends space and time. He is utterly separate from us. He is creator, and we are creature. He is Lord, we are servant. He is eternal, we are finite. He is self-reliant, and we are reliant on many other things, other people, especially God himself, to even survive. We are reliant, but God is self-reliant. So everything about God's being and experience transcends what we can even mentally grasp. As we sang earlier, no pen or quill, no scribe in perfect skill with flawless words could capture all you are. No lofty thought, no scholar of this world could grasp an inch of such infinity. Though we cannot comprehend such a mystery, just a glimpse of you revealed is compelling us to sing. And that's what Isaiah is getting at here. A glimpse of both the lordship and transcendence of God. So where am I seeing this in the text? Well, look again at verse 1. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So think about this. Isaiah's vision of the Lord only reaches as high as the hem of God's garment. So imagine yourself asking Isaiah, man, Isaiah, you had this vision of God. Tell us about it. What did you see? And he's like, I saw the hem of his garment. And so you're like, okay, didn't see much. But that's just the point. The Lord is so transcendent. He is so high and lifted up that even this remarkable vision, Isaiah is only able to see as high as the cufflink of his pants. A similar thing happens in Exodus chapter 24. In that chapter, God has just delivered the Ten Commandments and other laws to the Hebrew people. And in order to confirm the covenant between God and his people, 
God calls Moses and several other leaders to come up on Mount Sinai and eat a meal in God's presence. And it says that when they got up on the mountain, quote, they saw the God of Israel. So again, there's another one of these divine appearances like in Isaiah 6. But notice the report that we receive about this vision. It says that they saw the God of Israel and there was under God's feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And that's it. That's all they report. So this time, they don't even get as high as the hem of his garment. Instead, this time, when you ask these guys what they saw when they saw the Lord, they say, the ground was really blue, like sapphire. Because again, God is so transcendently awesome that to see him is almost to not even see him because he's so indescribably great. All Isaiah can say is, I saw the hem of his garment. All these guys in Exodus can say is that we saw the ground beneath him. He's that awesome, that great, that transcendent. In 2005, sociologist Christian Smith published a really important book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And for the book, Smith and his colleagues at Notre Dame, where he's a professor, they did extensive research through surveys and interviews and follow-up surveys and follow-up interviews in order to understand, as the subtitle says, the religious and spiritual views of American teenagers. And what they discerned was that the predominant view amongst American teenagers, even teenagers who grew up in church, is what sociologists called moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That label very well captures the prevailing view of God and spirituality for American young people. So the moralistic part means that young people believe God wants me to be a good little boy and not be bad. The therapeutic part means that young people believe that God wants me to feel good about myself. And the deism part means that, yeah, God exists, but he's not really involved or relevant to how I live my life, especially in the areas where I don't want him involved. In other words, what Smith found out is that by and large, American teenagers have a shallow, gutless, irrelevant, uninspiring view of God. God is like old man father time who just sort of sits on the fringes of reality, really insignificant to how I live my life. God is just my good old buddy in the sky, like a senile grandpa who doesn't really care if we sin or live selfishly. And friends, I hope you can tell that what Smith is reporting that so many young people believe flatly contradicts the witness of Scripture. The transcendent greatness of God utterly floors Isaiah. In this moment of beholding God's greatness, nothing is more relevant. Nothing is more important. Nothing is more inspiring. Nothing is more transformative. So do you have a vision of God like this? Or is it for you just a feel-good spirituality? Chicken soup for the soul, your best life now, hallmark, garbage. Friends, behold the lordship of God. Behold the transcendence of God. 
And finally, Isaiah sees that God is holy. The holiness of God. That's what transforms him. Look again, finally, at verses 2 and 3. Isaiah reports, Above the Lord stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, they flew. So around the Lord and around the throne room are flying these majestic, angelic creatures. Isaiah calls them seraphim. And this term could also be translated fiery ones because that root word seraph relates to burning. So perhaps... Along with their impressive six wings, they were also glowing, fiery flare, radiating from these creatures. And each set of their wings has a different purpose. One of them is used to fly, but another pair is used to cover their face. And this is likely for the same reason as before, God's transcendence. In the same way that Isaiah can only see the hem of God's garment, these guys, because they're closer to the Lord, must actively cover their face being in the presence of such greatness. And then the final pair of wings is used to cover their feet. So in the ancient world, feet were a symbol of our creatureliness because our feet connect us to the ground. We are not God. We are not high in the heavens. We are just humans. We are down here on the earth and connected to it with our feet. And even though these are angels, heavenly beings, they are still creatures. And so there's a sense of deference and humility they have in the presence of the Lord, causing them to cover their feet. And then Isaiah hears them speak, verse 3. He says, And one seraphim called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of the Lord's glory. So these seraphim aren't just hanging out, buzzing around the throne room of God. No, they are actively worshiping the Lord. And specifically, they ascribe to God that he is holy, holy, holy. Now, God's holiness is not too unlike God's otherness, his transcendence. But over time, especially for the Jews, God's holiness related to his moral perfection. Because even in the Greek pantheon of gods, to take an example from another ancient religion, they would have called Zeus holy. Zeus is other than human. He is transcendent over humans. But Zeus is not sinless. Even in their own mythology, Zeus is just as corrupt as any man. But for the Jews, God's holiness began to mean that he was especially different from us and other than us in his absolute moral perfection. So to try to help us connect with their experience here, I wonder if you've ever been starstruck before. Are you familiar with that phrase or that experience, starstruck? It's when you, for example, randomly cross paths with a celebrity or someone you deeply admire, and you're like stupefied. You're speechless. Several years ago, when we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, I was at a bookstore, and I was just strolling through, browsing, and out of the corner of my eye was what looked like one of my favorite authors. But I don't want to be weird, so I'm kind of looking without looking, like trying to use my peripheral vision to see if it's really him. 
But I remember just feeling struck with this sense of, wow, it's him. This guy is one of my heroes, and I feel like there's such a distance between me and him and his ability and his skill and his brilliance. He is so other than me in his awesomeness, and yet here he is in the bookstore right beside me. Well, that's a sliver of what Isaiah is experiencing here. And if a mere man, a human author, can arouse that sense of grandeur and glory, then how much more the holy presence of God. There is such a distance between us and God. He is Lord. We are servant. He is transcendent. We are lowly. He is holy. And we are painfully broken and stained by the presence of sin. He is above us and beyond us such that to see him is not even to really see him because he is so overwhelmingly glorious. But even still, we are transformed by the sight of him. And church, we've got to know about how all of this truth is fulfilled in Jesus. Again and again in the New Testament, he is called the Lord Jesus. Kurios Jesus. And having risen from the grave and descended to heaven, Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father, enthroned forever. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is high and lifted up. Jesus is God incarnate. He made the invisible God visible. He is a living theophany. And in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, when the Apostle John is given a similar look into the heavenly throne room of God, John hears the angels worshiping too. They still hadn't stopped all those years later. And they were saying the same words that we see here in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then later in chapter 5, they say, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. John says the hosts of the angels, the myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands of them are worshiping and declaring these truths about Jesus. Jesus is the one that if we get a glimpse of him, If we see Jesus in the fullness of his lordship and his greatness and his holiness, then it can transform us. Seeing Jesus enables us to fulfill whatever God is calling you to. Seeing Jesus in the fullness of his lordship, of his transcendence, of his holiness, it can transform you to fulfill whatever God is calling you to. Whether it's to bear witness to the gospel to your friends, family, and neighbors, or whether it's to walk through whatever sort of difficulty. It is a vision of Jesus that's going to keep your head up, that's going to keep your heart strong, that's going to keep your feet moving forward. If a young high school girl can transform the heart of a young man. How much the living Lord. If a human author can make me feel like, whoa, 
how much more the glorious Christ, risen, reigning, enthroned forever. So may we see him in all his glory. May we see him. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and confess. We confess on behalf of our nation. We confess on behalf of our church. We confess on behalf of ourselves that our God is too small. We have reduced you, Lord, to some puny God who exists for our shallow happiness and temporary pleasure. We've not been faithful to open your word in its fullness and to see you in all of your glory. We've made your religion about us. Father, have mercy. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to sweep across this place and crash into our hearts and give us a true vision of you. Open up the heavens, Father, and open up our eyes that we may behold you in the fullness of your splendor and power and glory. Nothing less will give us the change that we need. Nothing less will free us from temptation. Nothing less will empower us to fulfill all that you have for us in life. So, Father, we pray, give us eyes to see what Isaiah saw. Give us a heart to worship like the angels have and join them even now in declaring your lordship, your greatness, and your holiness. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. It is only by him and through his work that we could enter the heavenly throne room and not be incinerated. And so, Father, we come before you now in Jesus' name. Receive our praise for your glory. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.